Welcome to the Weekend University Podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organized lecture days, where attendees get a full day of talks from leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. If you'd be interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, you can sign up for the early access list at theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. This episode features a lecture on free will and human potential from Julian Bagini. Julian is a philosopher, journalist, and the author of several books, including Freedom Regained, The Ego Trick, and most recently, How the World Thinks. He is founding editor of The Philosopher's Magazine and writes regularly for national newspapers and magazines such as The Guardian, The Financial Times, The TLS, and Prospect. Julian is a regular guest on BBC Radio 4, and his 2011 TED Talk, Is There a Real You?, has received over 1.2 million views. You can keep up to date with Julian's work on his blog, microphilosophy.net. Enjoy the show. So the subject I'm talking about this afternoon is, is free will. And although psychology is the sort of core subject of uh, the weekend university, um, free, free will is a subject that I don't think can be addressed purely through a lens of, of science or psychology. There's a big philosophical aspect to it. And in fact, a lot of what I, I want to talk about is, is why, um, you know, you have to think about the philosophy of the science, if you like, to really make sense of it. And if you don't, you're in deep water. And of course, you know, free will is an important topic if we're thinking about human potential. Uh, if we don't have any free will, there is a sense in which all talk of potential is kind of meaningless. I mean, you have potential in the same way that a seed might have a potential to become a, a flower. I mean, that's, that's true. Uh, we don't think flowers have free will, but we think seed has potential. But I think when we talk about human potential, we're much more interested in the kind of potential which we exercise some control over, some agency over, something that, that comes from us. And so it's important to know, therefore, if we have free will, to know whether there is any kind of potential that we can realise. But perhaps more importantly than knowing whether we have it or not, it's important to know what it is. Because I think, you know, the question, do we have free will, often starts with an assumption that we know what we're talking about when we ask whether we have free will or not. And the only interesting question is whether we have it or not. On the contrary, I think the most interesting and important question about free will is what actually free will is. You start with the wrong idea of what free will is, uh, then deciding whether you have it or not kind of becomes irrelevant. So what is free will? Well, I'm not I'm, I'm going to... This isn't a definition I'm going to ultimately endorse, but this is, I think, where we tend to start from when we're talking about free will. I think free will is typically understood to have three different characteristics. Now, I'm not saying... Each one of them is vital, uh, but I think all three are quite commonly part of the common sense, if you like, idea of free will, and therefore the idea of free will which is often uh, rejected. I think the first of these characteristics is the one which is perhaps the least controversial. It seems the one that, you know, if free will means anything, surely it means this. It means having the power 
to have done otherwise, the power to have done other than you actually did. So, uh, you know, if it's the case, for example, that I'm taking a sip of this water now, if it's a case that there's no way I could have not taken a sip of that water, that what, in, you know, whatever would have happened, I was going to take a sip of that water, then it seems odd to describe it as a free choice to have taken the sip of water. Uh, we normally think if we've done something freely, it means that we could have done something other than what we actually did. And in, in a way, it, it doesn't seem to require any more justification than that. You, once you point that fact out, people will nod and say, yeah, that's surely what free will involves. Now, I think that is the most um, common uh, assumption behind the idea of free will. Um, but I think there's some other things that come into it as well. One is that this choice is somehow on the basis of a conscious decision. So yeah, I could have done otherwise. Maybe the reason I could have done other than drank that sip of water is because some process in my brain I wasn't aware of. Maybe, you know, it, it just churning away. Maybe there's some randomness in it. And maybe it could have generated a different action. It could have made me um, take a sip of coffee instead or just not have a sip of water at all, right? Now, but the point is, if, if that's the reason why I could have done otherwise, that doesn't seem to be enough to give us free will. I mean, it's not the power to have done otherwise because of because forces beyond my control and awareness might have led me to do something else. The assumption I think that most of us make is that to... To, to, to a free choice is, in a sense, a conscious choice. It's one I deliberately do. I, I, at least I know why I do it, and I, it's a choice I've made to do it. So the, the conscious element of making a free choice seems to be extremely important. And the third characteristic is that free will carries with it an idea of ultimate responsibility. So, again, to say that you, did, you acted freely means that you are ultimately responsible for what you did. Uh, this is, of course, why people get very uncomfortable when people start to talk about causes of crime, antisocial behaviour, bad morality, that kind of thing, in terms of causes to do with you know, childhood experience, genetics, or other things like that. You know, people, once you start saying that a person acted the way they did because of a f that kind of factor, it seems you can no longer hold them responsible for what they did. They're, they're no longer freely did it. If you become, uh, you know, become a violent adult because you had a, a violent upbringing and that is the explanation for stop, then in what sense could we possibly call, call your violent actions free actions? And in what possible respect could we hold you responsible for what you do? So I think that's an important element of free will. And it's one of the reasons why free will is such an important and contentious topic because whether or not we have it, that seems to be a hinge upon which the whole debate's about whether we can hold people responsible, whether we're justified in punishing them and so forth, all these things rest on it. So that's a kind of an outline, I think, of the three key characteristics behind the common sense view, I'd call it, of free will. Now, the problem is, if that is indeed what free will is, then I don't think it's difficult to reach the conclusion someone like this guy did, which is that free will is a pleasant illusion. Dick Schwab was a Dutch uh, neuroscientist. He had a number one bestseller in, in the Netherlands called You Are Your Brain. Um, and he, you know, he, he deals with free will quite briefly in the book because, well, you know, if, if free will is what I've just said it is, it doesn't take much time to demolish it as an idea. Anyone who studies the brain and human psychology, in fact, I just suggest anyone who cares to take 
a, a, a careful look at human behaviour is quickly going to come to the conclusion that we have no such thing. Well, why is that? Well, I mean, there are some experiments, there are some empirical experiments which people frequently cite. Um, so um, you may well know these. So the most famous ones are the experiments of Benjamin Libet. Um, I've heard it pronounced numerous ways. I don't know the right one, L-I-B-E-T. I'm going to call him Libet. Um, and uh, these experiments are well known. And you often hear people saying that Libet's experiments prove we don't have free will. It's like a scientific demonstration of the lack of free will. So you'd have to see the details from the back to, to, get, to get the gist of this. I'll explain what happens. I mean, the point about the Libet experiments is we shouldn't put too much stress on his specific experiments because there have been other similar experiments done since, um, and they all have a similar kind of finding. So all the experiments have in common uh, something a, a, an experimental subject is required to do, something fairly arbitrary, like, you know, push a button or, you know, have a thought, whatever it might be. So they just, they, 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 they're just told to do something deliberately. And with, there are very clever ways in which experimenters can determine the very precise time, down to milliseconds, when the person is aware of making that choice. Okay? And then you compare the subject's own experience of when they made the decision with what is going on in their brain. And you, you see a graph something like this. So this is like, the, the red line is brain activity associated with the action, in this case, the button being pressed. And so what happens is that there's what's called this sort of, there's this readiness potential, as it's called. So the brain activity sort of builds up before the button is actually pressed. Then, of course, it goes down again after the button is pressed. So this is the brain activity associated with the pressing of the button. The critical thing is that all of this gets underway in neurological terms ages before the subject becomes aware of the decision process. So, you know, if you're looking at the brain scan, uh, you, would, you would think that the decision to press the button began somewhere around here, somewhere in the deep corners of the brain. But the subject only becomes aware of the decision later. Uh, very soon before the thing happens. So it would seem to be, and a lot of psychologists would uh, claim this to be true, that what appears to be a conscious decision to do something is actually the conscious mind becoming aware of what the unconscious mind has already decided to do. The decision is made unconsciously, but we kind of like, kid ourselves, you know. We kind of think, ooh, I'm going... I'm go when, when you think... I'm going to do it, we think that's the beginning of the process. We think we're making the decision. In fact, what we're doing is we're becoming aware of a decision that's been made inside of our brains. All right? So this seems to be um, fairly, fairly sort of devastating for the idea of free will because of the second thing, mainly the second thing I put in my list, which was you know, that what's driving the decision would seem to be something in the unconscious brain. Conscious decision-making has nothing to do with it. And if all we're doing is being driven by unconscious processes in our brain, then, you know, where, where is free will in all of this? So it does seem to be fairly devastating from that point of view. Having said that, however, the concerns, the philosophical concerns about free will didn't begin remotely with this kind of contemporary psychological experimentation. In fact, what you find is, I think, throughout human history... Whenever people have embraced a purely naturalistic view of the world, 
In other, word, in other words, a view of the world in which everything that happens is the result of purely natural processes, natural laws, with no supernatural kind of stuff on top of that. Whenever people would embrace that view, the question of human free will then always gets questioned very quickly after, so it seems to follow. So let's take um, Laplace, for example, French mathematician and scientist, and he came up with this, uh, uh, you know, this sort of thought experiment, really, of the kind of ideal observer. I won't read the whole quote, but the basic principle is this. It is time, you know, the, the, the physics of the time is very Newtonian. It was seen as sort of like a, a mechanistic, deterministic process. And he therefore thought that, you know, if you were to know the state of every sort of atom in the universe at any given time, and you would know, and if you knew the laws of, of physics. Now, of course, that's beyond any human mind. He's imagining a hypothetical infinite intellect, you know. If something had knowledge of all those things, it would be able to both then predict everything that's going to happen in the future and also actually calculate everything that had happened in the past because everything occurs as a result of deterministic laws playing themselves out. Now, again, this, this, this thought is a very sort of... It's, it's natural you come to this thought if you embrace a deterministic, mechanistic view of the way nature works. And as soon as you do that, the question of free will, you can see how it quickly arises. Well, if everything that happens is a result of natural laws simply playing out, and that these, these laws are, you know, nothing to do with agency or choice, and there's no way of overruling them. And if we are ourselves part of nature, everything we do would seem to be part of those uh, laws as well. There's, your, your choices can't really make a difference. What, what you perceive as a choice is just another chain in the great chain of cause and effect, which affects everything from the the rising of the sun, the turning of the tides, the, the growing of the flower we had earlier. Now, of course, at this point, people will go, aha, yes, but Laplace, right? Newtonian view of the universe. It was all mechanistic and predictable and deterministic. But, of course, now we're in the quantum world. We know that it's not like that. You couldn't... But Laplace's observer couldn't do what Laplace thought he could do. It was a he, unfortunately, at the time. Um, he, you know, it would be impossible to know exactly what happened in the future because... Uh, quantum physics, there are indeterminacies. So you can know everything about the properties and state of a system, but you're not going to know everything that's going to happen to it. Now, that's true, but it doesn't actually help us when it comes to free will. Because a critical point about free will actually isn't whether or not everything happens in, a, in, a, in an entirely predictable and mechanistic way. It's whether things happen solely as a consequence of natural laws playing themselves out. So quantum physics has undermined the view of the universe as in the Newtonian mechanical predictable one, but it hasn't at all overturned, of course, the idea that everything that operates in nature operates according to natural laws. It's just those natural laws contain some random elements in it. And randomness isn't free will, right? If, 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 if it could be that I could, I could or I could not have a sip of water in 30 seconds, but the reason for that is some random fluctuation in, 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 at the, the quantum level. That hasn't given me free will. It's just made me, it's introduced an element of randomness to my, to my mechanisation. So embracing a kind of naturalistic view of the world would seem to do away with free will. Before you know the details of the brain experiments, in a way, you could say that someone at Laplace's time uh, could have looked forward to uh, the technology that people like Levitt now had and they would have said, you know, 
were we to be able to peer into the workings of the brain, we would see that every decision that happens is a consequence of neural activity, atoms hitting each other, and you know, it's actually nothing to do with anything conscious at all going on, right? So, you know, if you were foresighted, you would have, a, a, a deterministic physicalist would have predicted uh, what Libet actually found, right? So it would seem then that bad news for free will. Uh, um, and, and indeed a lot of scientists and thinkers have said pretty much the same thing. They've done away with it. Einstein, he said, everything is determined by forces over which we have no control, right? So this is sort of mainstream scientific uh, view. Uh, the forces of the laws of physics, the forces of nature are not under our control. Everything happens as a result of these things. And that means really everything we do as well is determined by forces beyond our control. Would seem not to leave anyone for free will. Darwin, I don't think Darwin said anything explicitly about free will, but he says everything in nature is a result of fixed laws. This is just scientific orthodoxy. But again, you can draw out the conclusion for yourself. If everything in nature is the result of fixed laws, then everything we do is a result of fixed laws. Where can there be free will? And so you come into the present day, you get someone like Sam Harris, who says we are not the authors of our thoughts and actions in the way that people generally suppose. And his book on free will basically says we don't have it. So that's it. We have no free will. Um, thank you and good night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very tempted to believe it. Actually, I've done versions of this talk before, of course, and you know, I find myself being persuaded that there's no such thing as free will at this stage. <laughs> Even though I know what's to come. Um, <laughs> there's, there's something we don't have, right? And, 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 and this is identifying it. The clue to the way out, though, there are various ways out, and the clue to the way out is, I think this Harris quote, I picked this one deliberately, he says, we are not the authors of our thoughts and actions in the way that people generally suppose. And I think that's that second clause is, is vitally important, right? We don't have free will if free will is how I defined it initially, in that kind of what I call naive version of free will. But does that mean there's no such thing as free will at all? Well, I'm going to try and persuade you that there is something worthy of the name of free will. Um, but, but, but on the way to doing that, I'm going to have to say a little bit, I'm going to try and say a little bit about some of the, again, the, the philosophy of the science behind this, okay? So, what's the real worry here? Well, one of the sort of ideas that the scientific worldview would seem to leave us to is, is something which is called epiphenomenalism, which is a great word, and if you can use it without stuttering in conversation, you look very, very clever. Um, epiphenomenalism, T.H. Huxley first came up with this idea and the way you put it was this, the consciousness of brutes would appear to be related to the mechanism of their body simply as a collateral product of its working. Now, he's talking about brutes, right, but actually we're in the same boat. And to be as completely without any power of modifying that working as the steam whistle, which accompanies the work of a locomotive engine, is without influence upon its machinery. So what he's kind of saying is that, I mean, if you look at what we call animals. I mean, of course, it's, it's quite striking, actually, how not so long ago it was complete common sense to think that animals didn't really have any kind of feeling or consciousness or awareness. Um, and any kind of, like, sense they would do, it just seems like a byproduct. People didn't believe animals' thinking would affect their behaviour. They're purely instinctive things. Uh, anything else is just kind of... It's like the, the steam of the engine. So the metaphor is quite a nice one. What it kind of implies is that 
when we're thinking and we're, what we're consciously aware of isn't actually what's powering our actions. It's not really what's making our decisions. It's kind of like a byproduct. It's the, the, the steam of the engine. It's the whistle going through the steam engine. It's just kind of noise, which we mistake for something that's doing some real work. So going back to the Libet experiment, when you have that moment of thinking, ah, oh, I'm going to press the button, that's a kind of, that's something obviously emerges from the, the, the brain's working away and somehow it creates these conscious thoughts. But those conscious thoughts are actually just byproducts. They're not actually doing anything. They're just a side effect. And that's what epiphenomenalism means. Um, it was put up quite nicely by John Searle, actually, more recently, who, who, who compares it to, he says it's as though the spume of the wave was thinking to itself, what a tough job it is pulling these waves up on the beach and then pulling them down again all day long, right? Now, obviously, we don't think waves have any kind of thought at all. But, you know, if a wave thought and it believed this, we would go, ha, ha silly wave you know the, the spume is the, the, the spume is just the result of everything it's not doing anything at all but on this metaphor that's what our thoughts are like it's the foam on the waves and we believe this foam is actually doing the pulling so epiphenomenalism is is actually the, the fundamental threat i think which underlies a lot of the concerns around free will it's the belief essentially that our causes uh, our, our thoughts all our conscious thoughts, everything we do consciously, isn't actually doing any causal work at all. It's just the sound of the unconscious engine humming, if you like. And I don't know, I find it, it's a very interesting thought. It's, it's kind of plausible. It is plausible in some ways, isn't it? I don't, I don't know whether you find it plausible. But when you first hear it, it sounds like shocking, because it would seem to make our whole lives kind of illusions. But if you take the mechanistic view of the world seriously, then it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because there's a great mystery. How could thoughts cause anything in the universe to happen? I mean, what causes things to happen are, are physical events. You know, atoms, I'm not a scientist, we know, whatever the latest things, subatomic particles, forces, these things interacting with each other, that's what causes things to happen. Thoughts aren't that kind of thing. So how could they do anything? How could a thought move an arm? An electrical impulse in the brain moves an arm, not a thought. And how could a thought create that electrical impulse in the first place? Because it's neurons firing that causes electrical impulses to go down here. So I don't think it's too difficult to sort of see the intellectual attractiveness of the idea that consciousness is epiphenomenal. It's just the noise the brain makes as it works. Of course, existentially, it's extremely difficult to accept because it would seem to make everything we do a real illusion. So I think we, it's dealing with the problem of epiphenomenalism is perhaps the fundamental thing we have to do. If we're going to save any idea at all that we have kind of free will. Well, how do we do this? Well, I think the first thing is, is, to, is to ask this question, what's a, what's a real cause, right? What's a real cause? Because actually, all I've said so far is based on the assumption that if you want to find the real cause, you have to, as it were, dig away to the fundamental physics in a way. Is that correct? So let's say your car won't start. Your car doesn't start. Why doesn't your car start? What would be a good explanation of why your car doesn't start? A good explanation would be because your battery is flat. The battery's flat, right? 
That would seem to be a true explanation of why your car doesn't start. But actually, if you think about it, a car isn't an item in fundamental physics. A battery isn't an item in fundamental physics whatsoever, right? Um, you know, so in, in a way, if you, want to get, if you need to go to the most fundamental level, the level of reality described by physics, you're not there when you say, uh, you know, it didn't start because uh, the, the battery was flat. You're at the kind of a different level of explanation whatsoever. But then I think we could quickly agree that there's... I hope we'd quickly agree that there's absolutely no reason at all to think that way of talking is mistaken, right? If you were to describe this situation, you could describe what's going on here by uh, fundamental physics, but actually at that level you wouldn't even see a car or a person or a battery. Those things would like vanish. These are things that exist at a certain level of organisation, at a certain level of description. And when you go underneath that, you're not actually explaining it in a more fundamental way. You're actually, in a way, not explaining it at all. To give another example, what's the real cause? I pressed the hash key button on my uh, computer keyboard and a hash key appears on the screen. Now, clearly, this, this is, I'm, I've picked this example because it's, it's, it's a, in principle, I guess, a manageable one. You could imagine a chain of cause and effect where you could, you know, see just particles interacting with particles and this thing leading to that thing, right? So in a way, you could, you could imagine breaking that process down to a purely physical chain of events. But you would be missing something, surely, if you didn't uh, recognise the fact that the reason why pressing that button leads that thing to appear on the screen is because the software has been written in a certain way. There's some code in the software which means that action results with that thing appearing on the screen. Now again, that code, that code is not found when you look at things uh, in, through the prism of, of, of physics, all right? You don't see code, you just see atoms, particles, forces, whatever it might be. But again, are we to say that that code isn't real? I don't think we can. And are we to deny that the fact that the program was written in that code is a vital part of the explanation. <laughs> in fact, you know, it's, an, it's, an, it's a, a part of the explanation you cannot get away from if you want to um, discover why uh, that pressing the button results in that. So the idea I'm looking at here is that there's something kind of suspiciously wrong, I think, in a kind of assumption that's often made when people say, it's not really this, it's really that. Where they're going down to this, they're, they're privileging a description of the world which is made in terms of fundamental physics, as though other descriptions are just illusions. But a car isn't an illusion, and I don't think a hash key on a screen is an illusion, and the code that's being written isn't an illusion. Now, at this point, I'm going to, this, this is a slight um, diversion here. Uh, so, so, just for two minutes, but it's an interesting point. I, I'm going to continue talking about causes, but Wittgenstein very interestingly distinguishes between reasons and causes, and a lot of people have found this quite a useful way of thinking about things. Um, he, he, what he's really saying is, again, I won't read, read out the quote actually, it's that um, when you talk about causes, causes is a way of speaking which only really makes sense it, it makes sense when you're talking about physical things causing physical things it's about chains of action in the physical world but he thinks reasons are, are another type of thing altogether right so the example 
might be, why did you move your arm? There's a causal explanation of why you moved your arm, and that's to be given in terms of, you know, physiology and brains, this, that, and the other. But if you say, why did you move your arm? Yeah, we're not usually asking for the causes in that sense. We're asking for the reasons. And the reason would be I was reaching for the light switch or, you know, I was waving to a friend. Now, Wittgenstein's point is that reasons aren't causes, right? And it's a mistake to mix them up. And the reason this is interesting is because it suggests that when we get obsessed by looking at causes, it's no wonder, perhaps, that we, we, be, we begin to lose sight of what's vital if we're thinking about human agency. Because reasons don't show up when you look at the causes. You, so you, you, you look at the brain events and what's going on with movement and action, of course you don't see reasons there. Because reasons aren't that kind of thing. They're, they're something else. Um, and here's a bit more. This is a Frankfurt, uh, Harry Frankfurt, the philosopher. He, he makes a great play of this when he, in his own account of free will. He says, you know, when we say what the reason is, we're not identifying the cause of the action. The cause of an action has got to be something physiological. A reason is not that, although the reason itself also has a physiological counterpart or foundation. He's not saying reasons exist in some kind of spiritual dimension. Reasons, you know, in here in the brain in some way. But the reason is something else. It explains or identifies why we'd want to perform the action. So he's saying, when the question is raised, why did he do it? There are two kinds of answers that could be given. And the people who are concerned about determinism are concerned only about one of those types of answers. So this is a slight aside, because um, what I'm gonna, what I, my main point doesn't depend on this. But I think it's worth thinking about whether perhaps, you know, there, there is a way of, of, of legitimately saying that we have reasons for what we do even though we don't find those reasons when we put ourselves under the microscope and look at the causes of what we do. No wonder Libet didn't find a reason in his brain scans because reasons are not physical causes that occur in the brain, but they are real. The main point I want to talk is rather than that, it's rather this idea of levels of explanation because I think even if, even if we um, talk about causes, um, there are definite levels of explanation which different causes play up. So we can talk about subatomic level, we can talk about neural level, we can talk about psychological level. There are different ways of describing a system. And again, what I find quite interesting is that um, a lot of people say we don't have free will based on things like Libet's experiments. They're saying that because they're looking at the, level of the neural level of, of description. And they're saying that's the kind of re the real reason we did what we did was because neurons were firing, etc., etc. But if you think about it, the neural level of description is not itself the most fundamental physical level of description, right? And neurons are themselves complex arrangements of atoms and, and subatomic particles, right? So there's a strange kind of double standard here. It's said that the psychological level of explanation is illegitimate, it's kind of illusory, because when we look at the, 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 the level of description underneath it, the neural level, we don't see thoughts, beliefs and actions, we only see neural events. But actually, if you're saying that uh, there being a lower level of description delegitimizes the higher one, then the neural explanation doesn't work either, because that's at a level of organization, and beneath that there's another level of organization, which is the most fundamental one in physics. So it seems you've got to make a choice. You've got to make a choice between saying either that the only real causes are the things you find in fundamental physics 
or that there are simple different levels of explanation. And depending upon what your goal is or what you're trying to explain, this is legitimate to talk about causes at different levels. Um, now, the idea of there being different levels of explanation could be interpreted in two different ways. Um, one is like a pragmatic one. So you could say, okay, right, there are different levels of description. We accept that. And it means for practical purposes, it's perfectly okay to use whatever level of description is most appropriate. So if you're trying to get the car started, right, it's perfectly legitimate to talk about batteries and electricity and all that kind of stuff and, and wheels and engines. But, you know, but that doesn't mean that that is the real cause of what's going on. The real causes are always at the most fundamental level. And actually the ultimate description of the universe is going to be fundamental physics. And everything else is just a manner of speaking. Now, it's a manner of speaking we can't do without. It's a manner of speaking that's often useful, but it is just a manner of speaking. And therefore, yes, it may continue to be useful for us to say things like, he went to the shops because he wanted a pint of milk, right? Because that's the, the level at which we engage with the world. But really, fundamentally, what explains what happens is always going to be fundamental physics, right? That's just, that's, so that's, that's saying that levels of explanation is just a pragmatic sort of compromise. But there's also an idea that there's, there's a more principled version of this, which is to say that's simply, that's just not true at all. That no one level can be described as the real level and where the real cause is. And it, it, it is correct to attribute causal efficacy at any level. So it's not just a manner of speaking to say that it was because he was hungry that he went to the takeaway. That's not just a shorthand because we're too ignorant to know what's going on at the level of subatomic physics. It's that actually, you know, that, that is a true and accurate description. In a, in a way, which one of these you choose may not in practice make a huge difference in the sense that once you've accepted the fact that there are different levels of description and that for practical purposes, you know, we, we have to accept, we have to act as though the psychological level were a true uh, a level, a, a real thing, that in practice it doesn't make much difference which one of these you choose. Um, on the other hand, though, I, th I still think that you're going to have that niggle. If, that's, if you think it's just a kind of convenient fiction, if you like, that we can't get away with, you're still going to have that kind of concern, yes, but fundamentally we know, don't we, that we do what we do because of atoms hitting atoms and that all the rest is just a manner of speaking. So I think it's worth asking whether what reasons we might have for, for thinking that the principled version of this is the correct one. That actually, as a matter of fact, it is entirely legitimate to talk about things like thoughts and feelings and so forth causing things to happen in the world. Now, I think the way to, to work on this is to question the reductionist assumption, because the, the idea that the only, the ultimately true level of reality is the one which is the fundamental physics is essentially the principle of reductionism. Reductionism is the idea that the way to understand how anything works is to break it down and down until you get to its most fundamental processes, right? Now, reductionism has been a very powerful research program in science. I mean, it's led to great successes. The breaking of things down into ever smaller parts is behind a lot of the great advances in science. And in a way, this reductionist um, assumption is behind it. 
And so this assumes that any complex whole can be entirely explained through the workings of its simpler parts. In principle, at least. In practice, as we've seen, that doesn't always work. In practice, if you want to know why your car doesn't start, you have to deal with large objects and not break it down to its fundamental parts. But ultimately, the real ultimate reason why the battery won't start is explained at that most fundamental level. And the reductionist, reduction, these two things are enough to define reductionism, but reductionism is also assumed to have a third part, which is that you can reconstruct from the bottom up as well as deconstruct from the top down. So again, in principle, if you knew what was going on at the most fundamental physical level, you would be able to then work out what would be happening at the, at the higher levels, right? So you could work up as well as break down. Now, I think we have lots of reasons for thinking that this is false, and, 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 you know, and a lot of scientists think this is false. This is Nobel Prize-winning physicist Philip Anderson. He says the reductionist hypothesis does not by any means imply a constructionist one. In other words, he's challenging that third point on the last slide. The ability to reduce everything to simple fundamental laws does not imply the ability to start from these laws and reconstruct the universe. In fact, the more the elementary particle physicists tell us about the nature of the fundamental laws, the less relevance they seem to have to the very real problems of the rest of science, much less to those of society. Now again, I won't pretend to be an expert in science, but natural scientists seem to be more and more inclined to this view. They seem less and less inclined to the reductionist assumption. Things like systems biology, for example, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's the idea that biology could be reduced to physics, I think, is one which fewer and fewer people believe to be the case. It would seem that what actually happens is that when matter organises itself in certain ways, things happen which simply cannot be predicted by the laws of physics alone. In other words, you, sort of, you, you, need, you need biology. Biology cannot even in principle be reduced to physics. Something else happens. Um, so this is, I've got some stuff here from Michael Gazzaniga, who's a, who's a psychologist. Um, so this is a summarising bit. Systems behave in ways which cannot be predicted simply by knowing the behaviour of the elements of the system. And again, I think this is a widely accepted. I, I don't know, I can't tell you the proportions... So I'm not going to pretend this is a... I, I can't tell you whether this is something virtually everyone believes or a large minority believes or just a majority believes. But a lot of people are coming around to the view that systems behave in ways which cannot be predicted simply by knowing the behaviour of the elements of the system. And that systems acquire characteristics which their simple parts do not have. And that's the critical point, right? So, again, biological systems, plants and animals, these things have properties which, if you only knew... Physics, even if you hypothetically could program everything we know about physics into a computer which was perfectly able to process it, the idea is that that computer would not be able to predict from those things alone what would happen at the higher level. Okay? Um, yeah, example, orchestras and bees, you know, these are just examples really of how, you know, the, the fundamental idea, if you want metaphors for the idea, we understand how holes can have properties which can't be predicted purely by uh, the behaviour of their parts. They take on a, a different kind of thing. So, again, Robert Lockley, another, another Nobel physicist, says he's questioning 
the reductionist idea and says what we are seeing is a transformational worldview in which the objective of understanding nature by breaking it down into ever smaller parts is supplanted by the objective of understanding how nature organizes itself. So the idea here is that a lot of the arguments you hear against free will and against the, the possibility, the very possibility that anything we think or believe might affect our action is actually being driven by an, a reductionist assumption which is certainly f f no longer, it's far from universally held and may even be much more under threat. In its place are coming things like complexity theory. So again, this is a definition of complexity theory by um, Nicholas and Ruvas Nicholas. A complex system is composed of many different systems that interact and produce emergent properties that are greater than the sum of their parts and cannot be reduced to the properties of their constituent parts. So again, this isn't maverick science, this is a big part of natural science now that it's becoming accepted that complex systems simply do things, have properties which are great, emergent in some sense from um, the properties of their parts. And so this is the idea of emergent properties as a critical part of this. Emergent, the way to understand emergent properties is that micro-level complex systems self-organize into new structures with new properties that previously did not exist to form a new level of organization at the macro level. This is Michael Gazzaniga saying this. And there's a strong version of this. The strong version is that this, the new property is irreducible, is more than the sum of its parts. Um, because there's a weak, in the weak version, that's true, but in principle, you could feed all that information into the computer and it would know exactly what the emergent properties would be. The strong version is that, in fact, you, you can't sort of do that with re reduction. Um, things happen when you put simple systems and create complex systems out of them, which are simply unpredictable from the bottom. Now, the key point, I'm going a bit quickly here, but um, is that... Uh, so a simple example would be physics, right? So we've got quantum physics and we've got Newtonian physics. And we have these two things, right? And the question is, well, you know, the, the physics has got this desire for the theory of everything, the thing that will bring them together. Maybe that will come. Whether it does or not, it's kind of accepted that quantum physics is more under fundamental than Newtonian physics. But critically, Newton's laws can't be torn up and replaced by quantum ones. Classical properties such as shape, viscosity and temperature are therefore just as real as quantum ones such as spin and non-separability. Now again, I think there's a sense in which without us being physicists, I'm always very wary of, you know, grabbing hold of some physics which is very difficult and then trying to draw a more deeper philosophical point from it. But I think in this case, it's not really arguing from the finding of physics. It's more like seeing in physics an example of something that we can see as being true without having to settle the science. I mean, this table is oval with a little kink in it, right? Now, without, even though in the most basic science, we know there's a more fundamental level of description in which things like ovals and hardness aren't there. It's, it's mainly empty space and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it just seems like silly to say that because there is that more fundamental level of description, then it's, it's not equally true to say it has the property of hardness and ovalness. Those are real properties as well. So it's like, it's, it's, it's accepting that these emergent properties have as much claim to reality as more physically fundamental ones. And of course, 
The significance of this for the brain and consciousness is important. So the way the Gazanagar have put it is that mind and consciousness are emergent properties which arise out of nothing more than brain processes. So there's no spooky stuff going on here. This is good science. We accept the fact that it's the functioning brain which in some way creates or enables mind and consciousness. That's true. But these are emergent properties. But if they have emergent properties, this is where it gets quite interesting. He says, mental states that emerge from our neural actions do constrain the very brain activity that gave rise to them. In other words, the brain gives rise to consciousness and thoughts and everything. And this is a new level of organisation. And this level of organisation does then affect how the system behaves. In the same kind of way that how a, how a, a swarm of bees behaves is in part a consequence of the way in which the bees behave, which and bees themselves, of course, are only made up of the more fundamental elements of uh, the physical world. But nonetheless, once you get something as organised as a bee and you put it together with other bees, the behaviour of the swarm is affected by the behaviour of the bees. It can no longer be um, explained purely in terms of what's physically more fundamental than the, than the bees. In the same way, mental states could be the same. And that would mean that mental states such as beliefs, thoughts and desires all arise from brain activity and in turn can and do influence our decisions to act one way or another. Okay? Now, I want to take stock and have a little break uh, in, in a sec before we go on to the next bit. So just want to, two, two key points to be made here. First is the idea that the real explanation for action can only be neuronal, I would suggest is based on a simplistic, false and outmoded idea of reductionism. And that therefore there is nothing unscientific in believing that our thoughts affect our actions. That's no more unscientific than thinking uh, that the, the way in which a bee moves affects the behaviour of the swarm of bees or the way in which a tree grows affects the growth of other plants in its areas, etc. Right? And that actually to think otherwise is to fall victim to an excessive reductionism which doesn't actually do justice to the complexity of the world and doesn't actually do, do isn't actually good science anymore because there's good hard natural science which tells us we can only understand ways in which parts of the physical world work by looking at the way they organize into systems so that's the kind of the the more this, this, after a little short break uh, will be more more philosophical stuff which is not so much tied to, to science what i said for, so far is, is broad-brushed in lots of ways. Um, there are elements of the science I've talked to and the claims for science made which may be contentious. Um, and, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I can't really say how contentious particular elements are. But what I'd wager is that the, the overall picture that comes out, we can kind of see the sense in that without needing to be experts on the specific points of, of the science, right? The idea that the key thing is really summed up just in these, in these two points here. That once you abandon the idea that the only real causes are found at the most fundamental level, once you accept the fact that once matter organises itself into systems, the behaviour of those systems in itself can legitimately be described 
as being causally efficacious for other things in the physical world, then the, the fundamental problem about how can it be that in this purely physical world, what we think and what we believe can affect our action becomes a lot less problematic. I won't say it's problems completely solved, but it becomes a lot, a lot less problematic. So at the very least, I think we have reasons for thinking that epiphenomenalism is, although it can be made to seem as though it's just kind of a logical consequence of having a naturalistic worldview, actually is no such thing. It's something stronger than that. And that epiphenomenalism is something that we can resist without having to appeal to a notion of mind or brain which sees it as being, you know, supernatural, non-physical and so forth, right? There's a way of getting rid of epiphenomenalism from that. So that's all very well, but still, still what we haven't done yet, which I'll come back to later, is a positive view of, well, okay, given all that's true, given that we can accept the fact that, yes, what we think and what we believe can make a difference to how we act in the world, um, that's not the whole way to giving us an idea of free will we can live with. So after a very short break, this is meant to be just five minutes just to go to the loo or whatever it might be, um, we'll come back and then see what notion of free will is compatible with this and might make some sense, all right? So do just make it more than just five minutes so we can, so I do want to finish it five properly. Thank you. Re almost repeat the sort of uh, summing up from the previous bit. So I think where we're at is that, as I say, one of the most sort of like, the, 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 the deep sort of worry which would make all talk of free will almost like a non-starter for the beginning would be if we thought epiphenomenalism were true, if we thought it was the case that um, being wedded to a naturalistic view of the world committed us to the idea that actually the only things that cause actions are, you know, uh, processes described by physics and that everything else is just a kind of noise. And I think what I've done is I've tried to suggest that I haven't proven that epiphenomenalism isn't true. That's, that's, that'd be too strong. But we've got reasons to believe that it needn't be true. That at least, you know, we can, we can understand how in theory it could be the case that it is perfectly legitimate to talk about things other than the things that occur at fundamental physics as having some kind of uh, causal efficacy in the world. And going back to that earlier thing from Wittgenstein, you know, maybe, again, it's, a, it's a more of a subtle philosophical debate in a way, you know, maybe we shouldn't talk about psychological events as being causes, but they still might be reasons in some way. Yeah, okay, so it can still be legitimate to say the reason I did what I did was because I thought this or because I wanted that, all right? And, uh, you know, that, that's, that might be different from saying that the thought caused me to behave, but yeah, that might be a, tech, a technical distinction. In, in everyday speech, what we're interested in is whether or not it makes any difference to what we do, uh, that what we think and what we believe. So there's, there's, there's a way of thinking, so there's a way of thinking about the world in a naturalistic way, which leaves open that possibility. But this is very much just opening up a horizon of, of possibilities. Certainly we haven't yet got to any stage where we could say that this proves we have something called free will. So we have to really go back and ask again what free will is. So just to recoup, this is what I defined it earlier. And again, it's not a definition I endorse, but I think it's what we take free will to be. It's the power to have done otherwise on the basis of a conscious decision for which you're ultimately responsible. Now, I think actually the reason, the main reason why it's easily concluded by very intelligent people, particularly 
intelligent people who have a scientific outlook why we don't have free will is because if this is what free will is, we don't have it. But that doesn't necessarily mean free will has to be this. So, well, how do we properly think about what free will might be? I think it's quite interesting that in the scientific context, at least, you know, how the, these experiments which show we don't have free will are based on getting people to do arbitrary acts in a laboratory setting, right? Um, this is not, if free will is important, presumably we don't think it's important so that when we sit in the laboratory, we can push a button at the moment of our choosing, right? We think free will is important because of the more existentially significant decisions we might make in our lives. So there's, there's, we've got to be a bit suspicious that there's something about the kind of things that are tested, experimented on when we're trying to see if we have free will, which seems, seems somewhat arbitrary. Even in the philosophical literature, of course, in philosophy, you know, we like our examples to be simple and clear and unambiguous. So, you know, people will say, you know, uh, whether you have this a coffee or a tea or whether you do this or that. But in a way, I thought, well, let's, let's sort of forget about that for a moment. If we want to think about what free will might mean and why it matters, why don't we start by thinking about what we take to be the greatest, most significant examples of free will in action? What do we take to be paradigms of human free will because I don't know anyone who takes the paradigm of free will to mean the capacity to choose tea over coffee or even the capacity to choose you know cornflakes over uh, granola whatever it might be um, <laughs> that's not if that's not why free will matters so I sort of when I tried to write about this when I wrote about my when I did my when I wrote about this academically when I wrote about the, my book on it I thought, who, who are the kind of people who most exemplify free will to us? And I thought, well, let's, let's take artists, artistic creation. I think a lot of people would say that artistic creation is one of the finest fruits and expressions of human freedom. Okay, I think, well, let's look at that and let's see whether that kind of fits this definition of free will. Um, well... I don't think it does either. And this is just a little sort of quote for the sake of it. This is Ray Bradbury, the science fiction writer, who said, self-consciousness is the enemy of all art. And um, this is in a collection of his essays, Zen in the Art of Writing. But, you know, writers and artists and creative people say things like this all the time. I, I went and saw the Picasso exhibition, uh, Picasso 1930, whatever it was, two or three, uh, down at Tate Britain. I didn't pay much attention to the date. Um, and yeah, there, there, was, there, was a, there was a quote from him there on the wall about how, you know, uh, it's like, it seems like when you're, when you're creating art, you know, the, the art has a habit of like taking over from you. You set out to do one thing, something else happens. This is such a common experience. So there are two important things here. So the, the, the degree of conscious control in artistic creation, one doesn't want to subscribe to the hopelessly naive and romantic view that all artistic creation is pure spontaneous outpouring with no conscious effort whatsoever. That's clearly not true. Um, there's quite a lot of stuff that goes on. But, but if you take at root, where do the ideas come from? Where do the tunes come from? Where do the characters come from? 
Most artistic people would tell you they have absolutely no idea whatsoever. It comes from somewhere unconscious. It's very interesting actually hearing about um, musicians, perhaps sometimes most eloquent on this. A lot of composers and songwriters describe the process of coming up with a song as much feel, feeling much more like a discovery than a creation. It's like the tunes are out there and someone's got to like discover it, yeah? And you, you hear it in your head and then, then you write it down. Again, this is very, very common. So this is why sometimes a lot of, uh, so depending on their assumptions, a lot of musical people see their music as basically kind of channeling God or the divine in, in some way. John Coltrane felt like that. If you read the liner notes to Love Supreme, uh, he talks there about how, you know, this music was just a gift from God and he didn't have anything to do with it. Ray Bradbury talks about how he writes his short stories and he wrote about the one he wrote, I'm sure most of us have read Ray Bradbury in the time, there's one where the, a couple, uh, the house has been, one of the rooms in the house is like this immersive 3D television kind of thing, you know, very futuristic, we're not there yet. Um, and how, you know, they, they go into it, it's in the jungle and they go into it and it all come a cropper. But, you know, the way he feels he's writing it, he, he, he's like he's following them. He's like seeing what they're going to do and follow them. And again, he's, he's quite extreme perhaps in the way he puts it. And I think he's quite, a, he, he does tend to romanticise things a bit, Ray Bradbury, if he writes. But again, if you go to any kind of book festival and you hear authors speak, particularly fiction writers, you know, they... they uh, they say remarkably similar things. They, they are surprised by what their characters do, etc., etc. So, you know, the idea that one has to be sort of like free, acting freely is about conscious control seems to be certainly not borne out when it comes to artistic things. And in terms of could have done otherwise is another interesting point here because the, the sense you could have done otherwise, I think a lot of the time the way people perceive what they're doing it, it, it seems like you know they, they'll think about it but only one solution seems the right one you know the idea they could have put a different color there doesn't make any sense that had to be the green had to be there the white had to be there the first movement had to be after the second whatever it might be the role of the conscious mind in artistic creation is is, is not absent i don't want to suggest that at all um, but it's almost like a kind of monitor. It's like the, the conscious mind is like monitoring what's going on. It is making like editorial decisions. So, but they often got, they, they have the nature of being somewhat retrospective. The unconscious mind presents certain options and the conscious mind has to sort of decide uh, whether to act on them or reject them, or whatever it might be. But it doesn't actually come up with them. Now, I think in general, the artistic example is perhaps a particularly pure, particularly vivid, and a lot of us aren't blessed with that kind of creativity. But I think that it kind of points the way. Because I think that if you look at your own experience, just attend to the way you are in the world, I think that most of us will agree that actually our conscious mind, it's not only this not in control most of the time, if we actually pay attention, it doesn't feel like it's in control either. And I often give the example of talking, at which point, because I'm now becoming self-aware of what I'm doing, my talking might begin to falter a bit. But you know, try and observe yourself next time you're having a conversation with someone, just a conversation, not of giving a planned speech or something, 
And, and it's really weird. You'll, you'll notice, of course, that you're, you're not at all aware of what you're going to say before you say it. You know, the words come out. You know what you're going to say at the same time as the other person in a free-flowing conversation. Even in a context like this, obviously I've prepared what I'm talking about today, but I'm not reading a script, right? So I'm not... But it's not because I've internal. It's not because I've memorised a script, and it's not because my conscious internal mind is writing on a kind of auto cue, which I'm reading out loud. It's just coming out, right? <laughs> it's just coming out. There's, there isn't a conscious stage before the uttering of it. So, which is why, if you go back to the libid thing right at the beginning, why are we surprised by that? Why are we surprised? The, the con before the conscious decision, there's unconscious processing. I mean, in a way, it'd be what naivety to think it could be any other way. Now, the point is, why should we be threatened by that? Why should we be threatened? Well, I'd partly ways of thinking, because, um, you know, the, the way in which people often interpret these more recent neuroscientific studies is that you know, your brain made you do it, that your brain decides before you do. But if you think about it, that is a very, very odd way of thinking about things, particularly if you're a scientist like Dick Schwab, who called his book, You Are Your Brain, right? His whole book was called You Are Your Brain. But actually his argument against free will, if you like, is based on the assumption that we are going to think that if something is determined unconsciously before we're consciously aware of it, that our brain has decided and that we haven't. Hang on, we are our brains, right? <laughs> so actually, the only sensible way of thinking about this, which is true not only to the science, but actually to our more careful attention of our own experience, is that of course, the vast majority of what we do is unconscious. Of course it is. If we had to consciously think and decide before we did anything, we wouldn't survive five minutes in the world. But that unconscious part is, is obviously part of us, that's us. When an artist is creating freely, a lot of that creating freely is about allowing the unconscious part of themselves to do their work. Now, if it were all unconscious, then, you know, we would be perhaps like, I don't know, there are some kind of um, savants who sort of like just produce work spontaneously and seem to have no awareness of what they're doing. It just comes out. That, would, that perhaps wouldn't be like free creation because in a sense we'd have no control over what we're doing, right? It, it would be free because the subconscious is just running riot, the unconscious. Um, the conscious mind has a role to play, but the conscious mind, to say, its role is more like the supervisor, it's the monitor. It's our capacity to be aware of our own awareness and therefore to modify what we do in the future, I think is an important capacity that is important to our sense of being free, our sense of having some agency and control, right? That's important. But what percentage of what we do is governed by that that's not really the critical point. Again, I think there's a certain fallacy here that people think that if, if, if we believe that 99% of what we do is driven by unconscious processes, then we haven't got free will. I think the percentage isn't the critical point. It might only be 1%. I don't know what the percentage is, but as long as there is a sufficient degree of conscious control, self-monitoring, ability to revise on the basis of what we observe ourselves doing, then we have some kind of self-control, which I think we can say is, is compatible with free will.
So we shouldn't be at all worried or concerned that much of what goes on is unconscious. And so the idea that free will requires that our choices are all conscious decisions is, was always an unrealistic one and always one which didn't actually conform to our ordinary experience of the world if only we pay attention to it. You know? And I suppose that's the point. We don't often pay attention to our own experience of the world. We, we are conscious most of the time. We just assume without thinking that our conscious mind is therefore in control. But it doesn't take, it shouldn't take a complex psychological experiment for us to notice that isn't the case. Actually, this is one of those things where um, certain wisdom traditions are quite smart on this. So um, there's a related topic to the free will one, which is notions of self, which um, is a whole story for another day. But of course, um, the, the Buddhist conception of the self, or the lack of self in the conventional sense, um, is very similar to the one which you found advocated by human Locke and is now the mainstream view in Western philosophy, and also actually the mainstream view in neuroscience. Now, of course, part of the Buddhist sort of practices which make one's aware of that are simply observation of your own consciousness. And it is, it is said, I, I know there are various forms of Buddhism, so I don't overgeneralize, but I think this is found in virtually all the different versions, that when you stop and observe your own mind at work, what you notice are, as I say, you know, thoughts arising, feelings arising. What you notice is that things just arise and you become aware of the lack of a conscious, controlling eye in charge of these things. Well, you know, you don't have to go the whole hog and do Buddhist meditation to do that. David Hume observed the same thing just simply by sitting in his armchair and, and taking, taking note. So consciousness, that's not the key point. Could have done otherwise. Now, could have done otherwise is, if you remember at the beginning, I said that's the one which I think people really think free will depends on, that you could have done otherwise. Well, this is where I wanted to look at another category of person who I think exemplifies human free will, perhaps at its best. And that's the kind of the political dissident, the, the person who stands up to authority, who refuses to conform with oppression and makes a stand. You know, I think if ever we think of someone as a, exemplifies the spirit of human freedom, it's that. And here's one, Paul Rassasesa Bugina. You know, he was the manager of a hotel in Rwanda at the time of the genocide. A film was made about his story called Hotel Rwanda, and he wrote a memoir as well called An Ordinary Man. And he basically had the opportunity to flee with his family, but he stayed at the hotel in order to shelter people in there who otherwise would have been massacred along with others. And he, with all these stories, there are always people who are out to debunk them and tell you that it wasn't really like that and blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. I think, generally speaking, this story is pretty spot on. And even if it isn't, there are other people like him. So let's not make it rest on one person. Now, why did he do that? Why did he put himself at risk in that way? Well, in his memoir, he says this. He says that if I left, they would be killed and I would never be a free man, which I think is a very interesting phrase. So what he meant was the way he experienced that was in a sense that he didn't really feel he had a choice, right? He had to do it. It wasn't that he thought, I could have done otherwise. It's that he actually felt he couldn't have done otherwise. If you think about it, if he really genuinely felt he could have done otherwise, surely he would have done otherwise. Why would anyone risk their own life for other people if they could judge, I could do that or I could not do that, it's purely up to me. Rather, the way he experienced it was that 
he was just so aware that leaving would condemn those other people to death that he was just he was unable to do it his value system his his sense of dignity wouldn't let him do it he felt if he did it he wouldn't be able to live with himself so in a sense he didn't his sense of that free choice we celebrate was one in which he said he felt he almost had no choice now again, rather like the artist example, this is a very, very common way of speaking you find amongst people who stand up for things they believe in. People tend to say, not, oh, well, you know, I could have, I could not have done, I just decided to because I'm great, or I decided to because, you know, it was sunny that day. People often, the way, the way it feels to people is, I had to do it. I had to, I didn't have any other choice. Now again, most of us are not, great heroes who stand up to great oppression. But I think, again, we can relate this kind of way of thinking to our own lives. Think about the things that most matter to you in life, and I think, generally speaking, you'll find you don't experience the decision to act accordingly as like a choice where... It's certainly not a choice where you could or you couldn't, right? So politically, if you, if you have a political commitment, you do not go into the ballot box thinking, oh, I could vote. Conservative, I could vote Labour. You know, it's, I'm just expressing my free will. Bang, you know. You go in there and your commitments mean you are drawn to one or another. They may, you may be reluctant, you may have reservations, etc., etc. Yeah? If you can't decide, if it's evenly balanced, that means you can't decide. You're in indecision. You're actually paralysed. You're actually less free than when you know what you want to do. Um, similarly, you know, if you have a... If you want to commit yourself to a relationship with somebody, you know, if you're trying to decide whether to do that and you think, well, I could or I couldn't, you know, it doesn't really matter, it's just my free will, then, you know, you, you probably shouldn't be making that commitment. You know, you feel you kind of have to. I think the things that most matter to us are ones where, for whatever reason, our life experience, having thought about it, etc., etc., sort of leaves us feeling there's only really one option we can do and be true to ourselves or true to what is right, whatever it might be. And I think, I think that's the case for all of us. So having free will doesn't seem to be actually the ability to have done otherwise. It's the ability to, have, to do what it is you most feel compelled to do for your reasons. So not because you're coerced into doing it, not because you've been hypnotised or not because you've been hoodwinked or whatever it might be, but because it's coming from you, right? Now, the third element of free will is this idea of ultimate responsibility. Um, I think this is, I try and deal with this quickly, it's a huge red herring. Um, this is, you know, a Bruegel um, depiction of the last judgment. The idea that free will is tied to ideas of complete responsibility as a complete red herring, which briefly, I think, is to, to do with our sort of Christian history. If God is to condemn some people forever or save some people forever, he can, and, and God is just, then unless you've got some very sort of weird Lutheran kind of theologies, which, you know, all theology is a bit weird, but for most people, God would be wicked if it weren't the case that we were completely responsible for what we did. So I think we've inherited this idea that we have to be completely responsible for what we do. That's kind of a theological necessity. But actually, 
There's no reason to think people have to be ultimately responsible to hold people account for what they do. A simple example would be with children. If you've got a young child, right, you hold them responsible for what they do. But obviously you don't believe they're completely responsible. You're aware that they're half-formed minds, that they're impulsive, etc., etc. But it doesn't mean you go, oh, well, you know, they couldn't help that. So, you know, smash up everything up and I won't be cross with you. What you do is you hold them account appropriately. And part of that is you're trying to build in them the capacity to take more responsibility as they grow older. And I think that's, that's the mature view of responsibility full stop. So this is why it's always a red herring when people say, oh, well, you know, the moment you start to accept the fact that people's upbringing or their medical conditions are affecting their propensity to criminal behaviour, you're letting them off the hook. Well, no, if you have a mature criminal justice system, you allow these things as mitigating factors, but you certainly don't mean that means that there's no holding to account at all, there's no holding responsible. It's just that you're not silly enough to say that someone is ultimately and fully responsible for what they do. So very briefly, this is what I'd say, if, if we do have free will, we have to forget that earlier definition. Free will is something much, much more modest. To say we have a, a free will that's possible for human beings to have and is worth wanting has a few characteristics. It means we do have the power to make a choice, right? The artist has a power to make a choice. Paul Rosasa Begina has a capacity to make a choice. You have a capacity to make a choice when you go into a, a polling booth, right? But that's not to say that power of choice emerges in a vacuum and is completely separate from the laws of physics, has nothing to do with your brain or, or your genetics or your upbringing. Of course it has to do with those things, right? Um, but the point is you make the choice without coercion. So in other words, you own the choice in a way with sufficient and appropriate self-control. Now, that's, these are vague phrases, but I think the key point is that the only... The moment we start thinking of free will as something you have or you don't have as an absolute capacity, that's going to make no sense whatsoever. The kind of free will that people actually have is a degree of self-control, a degree of autonomy, which is sufficient for us to hold people to account and so forth. If that seems imperfect and inadequate, well, I suggest that's because we've inherited this absolutist conception of free will, which doesn't add up. What free will can't be is the power to break free of past causes. Of course not. I mean, again, without knowing anything about science, well, any specifics about science or psychology, it stands to reason that everything that an individual is, is a combination of nature and nurture in some pr mixed proportion. We, however, however much each is, is to be debated. But you've got, it's got to be those two things. You can only be a, a combination of who you were biologically and through birth and what's happened to you. There is no third element, right? So. When people turn around and say, oh, everything we do is a product of nature and nurture, I mean, well, yes, what else could it possibly be? What, what's the magic third ingredient, all right? And I think that's the point. It seems people who end up rejecting the idea we have any free will are rejecting a notion of free will as a kind of a magic pixie dust, which kind of... I, and I can't even begin to make sense of what that is, a kind of a pure capacity of willing, which comes from, from where? That can't be what free will is. It can't always be conscious. Um, we just know that uh, most of what we do is not conscious. So if in order to have free will, you had to be in conscious control all the time, of course we would never have it. It's not all or nothing. It's a matter of degree, for reasons I've explained before. And it can't be the source of ultimate responsibility. And so I think that when you look more carefully then at all the, particularly scientists who say we don't have free will, 
what you will now notice, I hope, is that they are always defining free will in such a way as to make it impossible that we don't have it and actually making it, I would say, conceptually incoherent. So here's Dick Schwab again, who quotes the American researcher Joseph L. Price. I don't know why, because in the literature on free will, you know, Mr. Professor Price may be a very, very sensible person, all I know, but he's not held up to be an authority, defines free will as the ability to choose or act or refrain from action without extrinsic or intrinsic constraints. I mean, if you think about that phrase for a minute, I mean, what sensible person would believe a human being has a capacity to act without extrinsic or intrinsic constraints? That's utterly bizarre. Not even God has that capacity because God has intrinsic constraints of absolute perfection and knowledge, which therefore affect God's capacity to act. So, again, an absurdly uh, unrealistic view of free will, therefore, easy to show we don't have it. There, there's no such thing as absolute freedom. Absolutely. <laughs> absolute freedom is unrealistic. We don't need absolute freedom to have some freedom, which is what we need. There's no such thing as complete free will. Of course, what would complete free will mean? Um, our behaviour is for a great part steered by unconscious processes that leave room for a purely conscious free will. Of course not. A purely conscious free will couldn't exist either. So again, this second, I'm zipping past, I want to leave a bit of time for questions, but the broad kind of view I'm trying to get across is that start from an unrealistic view of what free will is, of course we're not going to have it. Except that free will is something more modest. It's a certain degree of control and agency and ability to do things. And going back to the earlier point, a belief that what we think and believe can affect our actions, we're not simply, these things aren't just epiphenomenal, then we can have something like that. And so to, to leave you just two broad definitions of it, Patricia Churchland, she says, this is in conversation, free will is kind of a healthy control system where all the bits are working well and that's as good as it gets, right? A lot of people say it's not good enough. I want free will, the capacity to make my choices, I don't know, unconstrained by my past, whatever. Well, you can't have that. You can have a healthy control system where all the bits are working well. And that's the only notion of free which, which ever made sense. Or as Daniel Dennett puts it in his typically uh, clear way, free will is not the overwhelming supercalifragilisticexpialidocious phenomenon that you thought it was, but it's still real. Thank you. I'm going to stop there. Hey guys, Niall here again. Just one more quick thing before you go. If you're interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, don't forget to go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast and enter your email to sign up. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show.